0: we be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter this morning. So, you at your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. I'll meet you there in 1 Peter. We're going to be looking just at three verses this morning verses 10 through 12. But again, as a, a kind of a lead-up into these verses where Peter's been so far, and we've been the last couple of weeks as we, we're going verse by verse through this book of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter begins by writing to these people in Asia Minor, in these different communities, who are living as spiritual exiles, who are away from their true home in heaven, and they are living as exiles. And Peter wants them to know, from the very beginning of his letter, he wants them to know that they can have a living hope despite their circumstances. It's the note that he begins his letter with. And that hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the inheritance that is coming in heaven for them and that is secured for them, that's undefiled and unfading, that's being kept in heaven for them and the promise that God in his power will keep them until they get to that inheritance. This is the way that Peter begins, but then he acknowledges the reality that while there is a living hope, there is also a difficult circumstance that these Christians find themselves in. By right, verse six, we saw that they are beginning to suffer these various they suffer grief in various trials. That there is real pain that they're walking to, real suffering, real grief. And so how do these two things go together? And Peter helps them understand this is not uh, void of God's work, but it actually is God's work. As he stands sovereign over it, these trials then are being used to refine them like fire does to gold. And it's producing something in them. uh, And namely, that even as they walk through it, they can continue to rejoice with inexpressible joy with glorious joy, because their joy isn't attached to their circumstances, their joy is attached to their salvation. That's how he ends in verse 9, that you can rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. That you have this incredible salvation from God, this incredible now standing in privilege in Christ, that you have received this blessing from God. That's the basis of your joy. And as Peter gets to this point, he wants to pause and make sure they understand that blessing. He wants to make sure they understand what it means, that, uh, what the salvation of their souls means. So in our text this morning, verses 10 through 12, he's going to be describing this salvation to help them understand the blessing that they have in Christ. Now before we get to our text, we have to do a little bit of work because that word is a word I think we use often and we use wrongly. Blessed. I'm blessed. I'm too, too stressed, too blessed to be stressed, I know it's something like that. That's me. Not even in the church. You just go on Instagram. You look at the hashtag. Hashtag blessed. Last I looked this week, there are 136 million posts with that hashtag. And when you begin to look through the different posts that are connected to that hashtag, what are the things you see? I graduated high school. Hashtag blessed. Got a new girlfriend. Hashtag blessed. Look at my beautiful vacation here on the beach. I'm living a hashtag blessed life. Almost all of them are connected to good circumstances around them. And maybe that's how the world understands what it means to be blessed. Oh my friends, Christians often aren't much different. We pray for blessing for our family. Oh, we, uh, any surprising or undeserved gift we, we get, we, we ascribe to God blessing us. Even within church, pastors—I mean, I—I I fall into this as well. I know others, pastors, do as well. That when we're describing church and we're saying, "Oh, God's just really blessing the ministry right now," what what entails on the other side of that are good things. Here's how the conversation never goes: How's church going? Man, half the people have left. We've had to let people go. I accidentally bapt, uh, electrocuted some people when I baptized them last week. <laughs> God is really blessing the ministry. That's not how the conversation goes. That even within Christianity, even within the church, we assign blessing, God's blessing, to positive external circumstances. Of oh, friends, the question we have to ask then is how does the Bible talk about blessing? And how does the Bible talk about what it means to be blessed? And we'll see how this connects to our text here in a moment. You see, the majority of the time we see um, there are 112 references to bless, blessed, or blessing in the New Testament. Never a single time is it connected to material or external beneficial circumstances. Not a single time. In fact, Peter, in this letter, he's going to talk about being blessed a couple different places. 1 Peter 3.14, he tells them this is what it means to be blessed to his, uh, those he's writing to. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. 1 Peter 3.14. 1 Peter 4.14, he says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Oh, Peter, that sounds very different from the hashtag I just looked through. Well, how does the Bible describe it? Peter's touching on a thread that the Bible describes when it talks about blessed and blessing. There's three kind of general categories as you look through um, what it means to be blessed. One way the Bible describes being blessed is that we are blessed in obedience, Bless in obedience. It doesn't mean that when we obey, God blesses us. It means that when we obey, we live a blessed life. It's not that that we then do things for God to give us what we want. It's that to experience blessing, live a faithful life. This is what I would understand the Bible to teach. When we live a life that God has designed for us to live, we will live life to the fullest. We will experience flourishing and blessing, what that means. James 1.25 puts it this way but to the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. One way the Bible talks about blessing is we experience that as we live obedient lives. A second way it describes it is we are blessed through trials and difficulties. Blessed through trials and difficulties. This comes up over and over again. You heard it in 1 Peter 3 and 4 and maybe you heard it in the confession as Peter was reading. If you didn't notice, that was just quoting the Beatitudes Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You hear some of these, verses 3 through 4, verse 10, 11. Here's the way that Jesus describes some of those who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you. We are blessed through these trials and difficulties. Now again, just like last time, I'm not saying that obedience unlocks blessing that God gives you whatever you want. No, it's living a faithful life that is the blessing, as we live a life that God has designed. What I'm not saying here is that the trial is the blessing. The trial, the suffering, the pain is not the blessing. The pain is not the blessing, but they are channels through which we experience the blessing, which is God Himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. That those who mourn are drawn near to the heart of God. And God is drawn near to the heart of those who are broken. This is what we see. And the great blessing is not the trial or the difficulty. It's that it casts us on the very very feet of Jesus. And we then experience Him. Uh, One um, songwriter a few years ago, Laura Story, captured this in a song. I usually don't love contemporary Christian music, but I think this song is just so wonderful because it captures this whole idea. It's a song called Blessings. Here's a chorus. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? This is one of the ways the Bible talks about blessing. Walking through suffering, grief, and difficulty as it draws us near to God. In our community group this past week, we were talking about some of this and walking through difficulty, and the question was asked, what moments in your life have you felt the closest to Jesus? And to a man around the room, everyone noted it was whenever they were walking through some difficult point in their life. Friends, when we begin to understand the blessing is God, then often these trials act as a vehicle to bring us then into his presence, to experience his goodness, his comfort, his hope, his peace. This is the blessing that we see because the... Obedience is not our blessing, ultimately. The trial is not our blessing, ultimately. So again, what is our blessing? Our blessing is God himself, that we are blessed. And this is the third way the the New Testament talks about it. We are blessed because of our union with Jesus and the spiritual benefits that we get from him. That's the blessing. Obedience, we live in that identity. Pain and suffering often draws us into that identity. But the blessing is the benefit we receive because of our union with Jesus. This is what Paul says in Romans 4, 7, and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. That's blessing, that God has looked at you in your rebellion, and he, through Christ, through your faith, then look at you and go, that sin is forgiven. That act will not be held against you. What an incredible blessing from God in Christ. This is the blessing, and Paul sums it up entirely in Ephesians 1.3, and this may be the best way to understand the blessing that we have. He says that God has blessed us. God has blessed us. What has he blessed us with? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. God has poured out all that heaven has to offer on you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is not contingent upon our circumstances. That doesn't get the hashtag on Instagram. But friends, those realities... Of the salvation of our souls, the blessing that comes through Christ, that's the great blessing in which we experience. Every Christian gets to experience that blessing. But for the believer in Asia Minor listening to this letter from Peter, they may be doubting that blessing. They may not feel very blessed. Not too blessed, very stressed, maybe their hashtag here in the first century. Oh, and friends, maybe you're feeling the same way, that maybe you don't feel particularly blessed this morning. But this is my hope, and this is what Peter's hope is now, to help us see the blessing that we've received in Christ and the incredible privilege that we have to then be counted as forgiven sons and daughters. He's writing directly to that person, he's writing directly to us to help you understand that God's blessings do not come through your circumstances, but through your salvation. The very goal of your faith, it causes us to rejoice regardless of the situation around us. So this blessing, what's it like? Now we get to our text, 1 Peter, 10, 1, Peter 1, 10 through 12. What's this blessing like? Peter shows us two things this morning. He shows us that prophets sought to understand it. We see the verses 10 through 12a. And then we see that angels long to see it. The second half of verse 12, 12b. This blessing in Christ, the salvation of our souls. Prophets sought to understand it and angels longed to see it. Look at verse 10. First, prophets sought to understand it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Now, who's Peter talking about here? You know, what we see right there at the very beginning of verse 10, he's talking about the prophets. These are the prophets from the Old Testament. Major, minor, ones that didn't write books, the prophets, the one who are writing and speaking to the people of Israel on behalf of God. And particularly as they began to prophesy about what God was going to do in the future. Right? What, what was it that they were doing? Well, they prophesied about the grace that would come to you. You see that in verse 10. They prophesied about the grace that would come to you. I, I cannot help, and we're going to begin to hear this more and more uh, today, especially. I want you to see the connectedness of the Bible. Between the Old and the New Testament. If you've been raised in the church, maybe you look at the Old Testament and you're like, goodness, there are some strange stories in there, but it's great for acting stuff out in a kid's classroom. Let's just get to the New Testament. Because there's some hard things to understand. It's difficult to understand. We're going to understand some ways in which God's relating to his people. And so some people, when they look at that, they go, oh, that's, that's a different, God of the Old Testament, he was different. He was kind of angry, had a short fuse. But let's get to Jesus. They tried to separate and distinguish between the two. Marcion was the first in church history, labeled as a heretic. But but guys, people have been trying to do this ever since. To try to lessen some of the realities of God's judgment and His righteousness and holiness in the Old Testament, they try to downplay it and say, well, Jesus was different. Or you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. The Bible is entirely connected in and of itself. The God of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. They are one and the same. And yes, Jesus, again, this is just the, 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 the reality, the point to be made is when people talk like this, they're talking about Jesus in the Gospels or in the New Testament letters. But when I get to Revelation, Jesus is coming back and there's fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and he will judge the living and the dead and he will not let sin go unpunished. But all those who do not stand in him are then standing then in judgment before him. He is the same God. Read Exodus 34 as God describes his name to Moses. He's describing Jesus. It's one and the same. And Peter's doing the same thing here. Peter's saying, if you look throughout the Old Testament, all these prophets, do you know what they were talking about? It was not a different story. They were talking about the grace that was coming to you. All along, God was setting the stage for what Jesus would come to accomplish, That's why Jesus, he can read the Old Testament and he can teach them all the things concerning himself in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. He can look at the religious leaders around him in John 5 and say, you search the scriptures talking about the Old Testament because you think in them you'll have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. This whole book has been pointing to me and Peter reads it the same way as Jesus did. That these prophets were talking about the grace that was coming to them. This is what they were prophesying. And so what was, their, what was the prophet's response then to that prophecy? As they're describing this grace that was to come. They're describing what God would do through Christ. What was their response? I love this. Look at verse 10. They searched and carefully investigated. Isn't that so interesting? Isaiah, Habakkuk. Jeremiah, Moses, the first prophet. So many of these prophets were saying what God would come and do. Moses, Deuteronomy 18. There's going to be a greater prophet than me that's going to come. Isaiah and Isaiah 53. There will be a suffering servant that will be exalted. They're writing these things about Jesus, but they're looking, staring, investigating, wondering, who is this exactly? When will it happen? They're investigating. They find themselves wanting to know what God is up to. And they were inquiring, verse 11, into what time and what circumstances this would all happen investigating, wondering, seeking to understand what it is they're saying. The prophecies of this grace that had come to these listeners in 1 Peter and to any Christian today. They sought to understand it. They wanted to know the time and the circumstances that the Spirit of Christ within them, Again, you see the activity of Jesus and His Spirit in the Old Testament. It was the Spirit of Christ within them that was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is what they were investigating, trying to figure out the time and the circumstances of what God was to do, when he was going to do this. See this in Daniel 12, verses 6 through 13. Daniel's asking God, when's this going to happen? Again, Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4, Habakkuk asking a similar question. And God tells them, it's not your time to know. He doesn't answer their question. But these prophets are getting glimpses of what God is doing. They don't quite have the full picture. Right, this is what any good movie trailer does. As is, is you watch a movie, this trailer before the movie comes out, they want to show you these glimpses and different scenes of the movie to pique your interest, but they don't want to tell the whole story. A bad trailer tells you the whole plot of the movie in the two-minute trailer. A good trailer gives you small little glimpses, piques your interest, makes you want to go and see what's going to happen whenever the movie comes out. Now what a trailer does that the prophets didn't do is a trailer tells you, coming April 19th to your theaters. This is exactly what the prophets wanted to know. They get these scenes and these glimpses and they want to know when's it going to be revealed and God doesn't tell them. They had these scenes, again just like uh, the, the trailer for the final Star Wars movie. A wonderful trailer. So much intrigue. What's going to happen to Ray? Oh, is that the emperor's voice? Oh my goodness, what's happening? I thought the emperor was dead. What's going on? Ray has a red lightsaber at some point. Ray has a red lightsaber. Wow, does she, oh, she go to the dark side? Oh, who knows? All this incredible stuff in the trailer. You want to go see it and then you go see the movie and the movie was terrible. <laughs> so the analogy breaks down. But these prophets had little glimpses like that. Again, a servant of suffering in Isaiah 53. A king of glory in Psalm 24. This king that would ride in on a donkey in Zechariah 9. This king that was pierced and forsaken in Psalm 22, but yet wasn't abandoned in death and did not experience decay in Psalm 16. These glimpses that they saw of grace, they had a picture of the glory and they had a description of the suffering, but there were so many that missed the necessity of the suffering. They could get the glory, but they missed the suffering. And this is why so many in Israel miss Jesus, because they expected this king to come in and restore Israel back, like in the days of David and Solomon, to free them from Roman tyranny and to rebuild and live in this incredible Jerusalem, this incredible Israel. And Jesus comes in and he's on a donkey and he's crucified. And this wasn't just the people of Israel, this was his own disciples that didn't get this picture. Again, Matthew 16, right after Peter had just said, you are the Christ, and Jesus was like, Peter, you got it, man. That's from God himself, and on this rock, I'm going to build the church. Like three sentences later, Jesus looks at him and calls him Satan. This is just classic Peter. He just can't help himself, it seems like. Why did he call him Satan? Well, because Peter didn't understand the necessity of suffering. Matthew 16, 22 Jesus was describing the need for him to die and be raised again. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. So, not a good decision, Peter. And here's his rebuke. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. You won't be killed. And Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns. But human concerns. It hadn't sunk in for Peter yet. He could boast in the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus' glory was expressed and he got to experience it, but he still could not fathom the Mount of Calvary. So, the night whenever Jesus was betrayed, the soldiers came to take him in. What did Peter do? He pulls his sword out and he starts swinging. And he's obviously not a very good shot because he just takes off a guy's ear didn't kill or really wound anybody except for taking off this guy's ear and Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on the guy's head which again just would have been incredible to see but Peter didn't understand that the glory of Jesus had to happen after the suffering of Jesus and that had been talked about throughout the Old Testament Peter drew his sword to rescue Jesus but he had failed to know that Jesus was on his way to rescue him The Christ of glory is the Christ of the cross. And those who follow him will walk a path of a similar pattern. A cross-shaped life. But that life, friends, it leads to glory. It leads to an inheritance. That cross, just as with Christ, leads to a crown. The prophets wrote about this, but they did not understand it. You see, they weren't writing for themselves. They weren't writing even for their generation, right? This is what Peter says in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They were serving you as they wrote about what? The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And you see the order of things. His suffering and then his glory. This is the story of the entirety of the Old Testament. and The prophets couldn't understand it entirely. As Mike read earlier in Matthew 13, this is what Jesus said in verses 16 and 17. Blessed, can you hear that word again? Blessed are your eyes because they do see. Blessed are your ears because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things that you see but didn't see them. And to hear the things that you hear but didn't hear them. These prophets Sought to understand what these listeners in 1 Peter and friend, what if you're here this morning and a Christian, what you experience. They sought to understand it. They talked about this gospel of grace, this story of grace. They could not understand it entirely. You are blessed as you've heard and seen for yourself. Friends, there is a unified story of grace from Genesis to Revelation. It is one story that God begins and that He completes, and it culminates in the person and work of Christ. These are not just disjointed stories that don't somehow go together, but are really good for Sunday school activities. This is a story of redemption, a story of grace that God is unveiling from beginning to end, and it all leads to Jesus. Every promise, every prophecy, every type, and every shadow— All setting the stage and testifying about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We see this all the way back in the beginning. Who Jesus was, even in the Old Testament. That in Genesis 1, he was the word that was creating. In Genesis 3, he was the promised serpent crusher whose heel would be bruised. In Genesis 6, he was the ark of Noah, and anyone who hides themselves in him will be safe from God's wrath and judgment outside. In Genesis 12, he was the promised son of Abraham, whose blessings would flow to all the families of the earth. In Genesis 22, he was the ram caught in the thicket who would die in your place. In Exodus 12, he was the Passover's lamb whose blood was spilled so that death would pass over you. In Leviticus, he was the entire sacrificial system that made it possible for a sinful humanity to once again enter into the presence of a holy God. In Numbers 21, he was the serpent that Moses lifted up on a pole so that anyone who looks at him and believes would find life. In Deuteronomy 18, he was the coming prophet that would be greater than Moses. In 1 Samuel 17, he was the unexpected warrior, the shepherd from Bethlehem that runs to the battle line to fight and defeat your greatest enemy. And his victory is then given to his people, even though we didn't lift a finger. In 2 Samuel 7, he was the promised son of David who would establish an eternal kingdom for his people. In Psalm 22, he was the one that was forsaken by God. In Psalm 23, he was the good shepherd. In Psalm 110, he was the Lord of David and the king of kings. In Psalm 118, he was the rejected cornerstone. In Isaiah 6, he's the holy one who seated on the throne that caused Isaiah to tremble and angels to burst out in song. In Isaiah 9, he was the promised child that would be born for you. In Isaiah 53, he was the suffering servant that was wounded and pierced for your sin so that you may be healed. In Jeremiah 31, he's the bringer of a new and better covenant. In Ezekiel 47, he's the river that flows from the temple that will bring healing to the nations. In Daniel 3, he was the fourth person in that fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel 7, he's the ancient of days. In Hosea, he was that faithful husband constantly pursuing his ever unfaithful bride, in Micah 5, he's the ancient ruler that would be born in Bethlehem. In Jonah 1, he's the prophet of God that descended into the depths for three days and would rise again, proclaiming the salvation of God. In Nahum 1, he's the great avenger of God's elect. In Zechariah 9, he's the coming king that rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. In Zechariah 12, he's the pure son. And in Malachi 4, he's the son of righteousness that has now risen with healing And his wings. Friends, all of scripture is woven. Together, interconnected to display the glory of God and the grace that has now come to you in Jesus Christ. This is one story of grace. The prophets searched and inquired and longed to understand what you have experienced. The glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. But to help his readers and us understand this privilege and blessing that we have in Christ, Peter shows us not only that the prophets sought to understand it, but he also shows us that the angels long to see it. In the second half here, verse 12... He so said, these things have now been announced. The, these things he's talking about refers back up to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, the, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection and all that is entailed in that, the gospel, that these things then have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So again, real quick pause. Peter's now saying that that these believers in Asia Minor have believed in this gospel of grace, that the Old Testament has been leading up to the whole time, that they believe them how? Not through God just magically bringing them into his kingdom, not even just showing up in a vision, telling them the gospel they believe, they believed how? Through those who came and announced to them and preached the gospel to them. You hear this everywhere in the Bible That God is the Lord of salvation and he can save however he wants. But here is how how God in his wisdom has set deemed, uh, deemed fit to be able to save people. It is through your mouth. Through us speaking. Through us announcing and preaching and saying. That's how this gospel spreads. That's why Paul, again, in Romans 10 can say, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the name of the Lord if they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how will someone preach unless someone goes? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Because faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing from the word of Christ. It comes through the announcement, through the preaching, through the saying of the gospel to you. And so we may look then at the prophets in the Old Testament, or hear these preachers in the New Testament, and we may say, how was God working? Who, who was doing the work in the Old Testament and the New? And we may say, well, it's the prophets and the preachers. And that's kind of right. But if you look in this text, who, where was the power for the prophets, and where was the power for the preachers? Verse 11, it was the Spirit of Christ within them. It was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Who's the he? The he is not the prophets. The he is the Spirit of Christ. It was God's Holy Spirit in the Old Testament working through prophets that was proclaiming this message. And here in the New Testament, these preachers were bringing the gospel, but where was the power found in them? They preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. If you're going through our Acts Bible study, this is what we're looking at tonight in Acts 1. Jesus is going, wait, wait, because my spirit will come, and when he comes, he will then empower you to be my witness. It's his spirit that does the work. Not us, not our ingenuity, not our winsomeness, not how cool we are, not on how many followers we have on Instagram, not what our platforms may look like. The power for this ministry comes through his spirit and his spirit alone. And so Peter's writing here saying these are the things, this gospel, you now believe has been announced to you through these preachers who've preached this gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he gives a little dash there and then gives this sentence. And in this sentence, I think it's overlooked, but it's one of the most, I think, beautiful and interesting sentences in the Bible, to me at least. Look here at the next sentence. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. What are these things he's talking about? I think it's the same these things at the beginning of the sentence, which again is referring back up to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The gospel. That God, through Christ, is redeeming a sinful humanity and a broken creation back to himself for all those who would believe in him. And those things, the salvation of your souls, not only did prophets seek to try to understand it. But Peter's saying, angels long to catch a glimpse of it. They longed to be able to see even for just a moment. I can't help but think that the song we sang earlier, the second verse I think is just honestly meditator on these verses. Crown him the Lord of life or crown him the Lord of love. The second verse goes like this. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty glorified. You hear the suffering and the glory. Rich wounds, the the hands and the side of Christ, but they're visible from above. In the heavens, they can see these wounds, but in beauty, those wounds are glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wondering eye at mysteries so bright. There is this image that Peter's painting for us here, that angels have the ability to see what's going on in this world, right? Jesus tells us something similar in Luke 15. When one sinner repents, all of heaven celebrates. There's an understanding and acknowledgement of what's happening in this world. And as the angels stand in heaven around the throne, begin to look at what God has done For you in Jesus Christ, they find their necks beginning to crane to catch a glimpse at how that can be true and what would drive God to do something like that. These sinless creatures who have experienced the very presence of God and cry and sing out holy, holy, holy around his throne, who've been used by him as messengers and by workers, who inhabit the glory of heaven and have never known what it means to turn away from their creator. These angels cannot wrap their minds around what God has done for you. A holy God. Holiness that they understand in ways that we don't. A just God. A righteous God has moved heaven and earth to die for you. To suffer for you. To take your punishment on himself. Even though you were his enemy. God didn't wait for you to become save worthy. He came while you were his enemy. You made the choice that these angels hadn't. You rebelled against the king. You deserve the punishment. And yet in his mercy... And by his love, he has come for you. And now for all those who believe in Jesus, he has poured the blessings of heaven on you. You experience what angels eagerly desire to see. They cannot fully bear the sight of all that God has done for you. Your sin, forgiven. Your guilt, canceled your enemy defeated your life secure your shame removed your condemnation gone your redemption accomplished your freedom fixed your adoption is final you have now while you were once an enemy have now been brought into the family of God There is a seat for you at his table. God has brought you near, and he calls you a son, and he calls you a daughter. Friends, angels may call him holy, but you get to call him father. They long to catch a glimpse of it. Peter wanted his readers, and he wanted us to appreciate and realize our status as Christians. What does it mean that he has saved our souls? The incredible blessing that we now have in Christ. That now we can draw near to God. That we can live in his presence today with the hope that one day we will live forever with him. And we see often in trials and suffering, we're drawn even closer. And so we can say, even as we mourn, we are blessed Because we know that we are comforted. And we know that God's greatest blessing is found in God himself. And that's what we receive in the salvation of our souls. Old Testament prophets saw it from afar. Angels longed to catch a glimpse of it. Oh, but friends, you, if you're in Christ, you get to experience it. The least of all the disciples of Jesus today have a better understanding of the Old Testament than the greatest Old Testament prophet. The least of any disciple of Jesus today has a deeper fellowship with your creator than any angel. That's what you get to experience. What a privilege. What a blessing. Friends, that's what it means to live a blessed life. Let's pray.